We're supported by Panacea Financial, digital banking built for doctors by doctors. At Panacea Financial, you can have your own free personal banker and a support team that works around the clock just like you do. Open your free checking account today at panaceafinancial.com. Panacea Financial is a division of Sonabank, member FDIC. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Hey, guys, we're back. Hi, Matt. I couldn't interrupt you. <laughs> Just big energy all around. I've, I I've noticed that good. if I switch it up, Stuart can interrupt me. That's so, true. Of course, this is the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto. I was referring to the great Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, who loves to interrupt me when I'm trying to do, I do. the intro. I do. Tonight, we're going to recap in a rapid format, uh, especially for us, a rapid format, three recent episodes <laughs> on nephrotic syndrome, what the USPSTF and uh, which is a PrevMed episode and a smoking cessation unfiltered episode. Um, before we get into that, Paul Williams, can you tell people what is it that we do on this show? Oh, sure, Matt. Thanks for asking. Just for form's sake, we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Um, tonight, it's kind of meta. We're, we're talking about the experts that we've already talked to. So we're kind of the experts, but we're not really the experts. We're just referring to experts we've already spoken to. And we're going to talk to you about the the various uh, clinical pearls that we picked up from each of them about the three episodes that you just talked about. Yeah, and we, we think of these as like spaced repetition. We know some people don't like to listen to the full 60-minute episodes, so hopefully this will you know, either refresh for you or teach you at least some of the pearls you would have learned had you listened to the full thing. Or maybe you'll want to go back and listen to the full thing. Yeah, because people complain about the length of the podcast. I mean, I they, they annoy me, frankly. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, Boo-hoo, I have a life. Boo-hoo, I don't. Like, I just don't, I don't have any energy for it. They're all listening to it on 2x speed while they're, like, <laughs> drinking their sixth cup of coffee of the day and walking their dog. Like, no one's paying attention anyway, yeah. Paul. Speaking of which, let's get right to it. So, are you confused by nephrotic or nephritic syndrome? So am I. I still am. But episode number 250 with Dr. Joel Topf may help you. And first up, we have Matt with his own pearl. Matt? Okay, so we spent a lot of time on the show talking about this. I love talking about the urine studies because I every time I ask this question on rounds to people, uh, I rarely get like the right answer, but it seems like it should be such a simple thing. So we talked about the urine dipstick. It measures albumin. So if someone has just like light chains in their urine, you are not going to get a positive urine dipstick. That's the whole Bench Jones protein thing. And we talked about that what I had never heard before, Stuart, did you know that urine albumin creatinine ratio was like a standardized thing and that the urine protein creatinine ratio varies more? Maybe you did. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say yes, <laughs> even though it's not true. <laughs> right. So Stuart, the other, so what he told us about this, because I was asking him, I was kind of grilling him on the urine studies because sometimes people say uh, it's more than two and a half grams or three grams or three and a half grams of protein in the urine. And he mm -hmm. basically said this, he said that uh, you should at least one time, if you're working someone up for proteinuria, check a protein creatinine because 
urine protein creatinine ratio checks all the proteins, not just the albumin fraction. Right. If it's somebody with diabetes and you're following them chronically, you can just follow the albumin creatinine ratio like you're used to doing. But uh, he said that a, gra- a two gram cutoff is where it starts to get his attention. And he's thinking about how acute is this? Does this person need a biopsy? Because yeah. like, Paul, I don't know about you. You have a lot of patients with diabetes that you're checking and like, it it seems to always remain relatively stable over time. Is that your experience? Yeah, and I, I think we touched on this in the the episode. I'm not sure if this is going to be um, leading to your teaching point or not, but I, I feel like when I find nephrotic syndrome, it's almost always when we're working up a quote unquote heart failure exacerbation for someone who has no heart failure, and they're just they're swollen, they're edematous, and even though the echo is stone cold normal and they're not quite behaving like heart failure, we just anchor to it until eventually I'm like, we should probably check their urine, and then then we kind of do. Mm. Uh, and then the, the diagnosis kind of reveals itself. So that's usually when I see nephrotic syndrome rather than this sort of slow drift into it from my, my outpatient clinics. Right, right. What about you, Stuart? Any? So same, kind of the, the, the same approach as well. Um, but uh, I have seen progressive um, proteinuria more in my hypertensive patients who are horribly noncompliant, especially during this pandemic. Um, I do follow the albumin creatinine ratio on those individuals with an initial protein creatinine at initial diagnosis, more looking for end organ damage. Mm-hmm. And also uh, for the questionable hypertensive emergency patients, check a spot for those patients as well to determine how much they're spilling at that point. Right. Yeah. But so I've identified actually not an insignificant amount. Yeah. So if, if you see a protein on, a, if you see protein on a dipstick you can quantify it with an albumin creatinine ratio or a protein creatinine ratio. And if it's more than two grams and you don't have a good explanation for it, that's something that you should pursue. Right. That was that was Dr. Toff's cutoff there. Um, I think the yeah. technical definition for nephrotic syndrome has uh, a ratio uh, on a spot urine protein or a 24-hour hour urine protein of three and a half grams or more. But right. and, yeah, right. go on. And just wanted to foot stomp that on the, the UA, it's albumin. It's not globulin fraction on the UA. Yeah. So if the case that we had presented to Dr. Toff was a patient who had diabetes, hadn't really been seen in many years, maybe even almost like a decade, and had a normal creatinine when last checked, and now all of a sudden was presenting with an elevated creatinine and like more than 10 grams of proteinuria. And in that case, you can't just say, oh, this is diabetic nephropathy because we had no time points in between. So the pace of things is 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 important. If it was someone that had diabetes and you're following them that whole time and watching that albumin, uh, that nephrotic syndrome develop before your eyes, you're probably going to be more confident it's diabetic nephropathy. But mm-hmm. uh, it, it, in many cases, the person's going to need a workup. That's right. And speaking about that workup, Matt, so if you're going to have a patient with nephrotic syndrome, what's the chances that they're going to get a renal biopsy? I think in in this, uh, unless it's the like the case I was just talking about, someone with diabetes that's obviously progressing, it's a pretty high chance they'll get a biopsy. This anti PLA two R thing, Stuart. Uh, yep. I don't yeah, know if man. you think. What do you what do you think about that? I think, I mean, I like like you've said before. I also feel ashamed that I didn't know about the anti PLA two R one because it looks like Plazer. <laughs> and that's just an amazing thing. Um, because you mean the word written out looks like yeah. Okay, got anti PLA two R looks like anti plazer. <laughs> Anyways, so what does it mean if the anti PLA two R is is high? What do you think? Yeah. So this measurement, the reason we were ashamed is because it's it's been around since like two thousand nine, 
And yeah. I've seen it ordered once or twice. Nephrotic syndrome is not that common, but I, I never really took the time to look it up or look that much into it. But as uh, as is his way, Dr. Top basically said it's it's a great marker for primary membranous nephropathy. So if you're trying to figure out, is this a primary or secondary cause of membranous nephropathy? And that's positive. That's that's the likely diagnosis. And it's also a great test because you can you can monitor the titers and monitor response to treatment, disease activity. So it, it really is a great test and not something I had been using. So definitely you should think about adding that into for nephrotic syndrome. We talked about the workup on the show. Mm-hmm. You're going to get an ANA because lupus is in the mix here. I, I hate ordering an ANA, Paul, but I, I guess this is one oh. of the times it's such a rare condition that that maybe you would order it if someone truly has a nephrotic syndrome. I'm just picturing the rheumatologist screaming at the screening ANA. Like, I guess it's not really screening if you're trying to work this up, but it's still a right. cause of ANA is not probably yeah, slam maybe, dunk. Maybe throw in at least one other feature of lupus before you before you throw in the <laughs> ANA. But you're going to get an SPEP and a UPEP uh, looking mm. for things like amyloidosis, uh, myeloma, hepatitis B, C, HIV, and of course the anti-PLA2R. Yeah. Plazer. Let's call it Plazer. Plazer. Yeah. Yes. I was going to say probably the reason it didn't you didn't clock it when you, it was ordered in the past is because it's mixed in with the alphabet soup with the rest of the workup. Like you just see like <laughs> this lab true. is right. kind of thrown in there with the order set. So I, I'm okay. not sure I would have chased it down either. Yeah. yeah. So Paul, uh, I know, so the, the clinical features, uh, this illness script for nephrotic syndrome, it includes, of course, the proteinuria, which we talked about. It, there's hypoalbuminemia. Oftentimes the person has edema, which you also mentioned. And tell us a little bit about this hypercoagulable state, and uh, what did what did Dr. Toff have to say about that? Yeah, so the, the hypercoagulable state, uh, I think we discussed before, it's it's one of those things that you sort of vaguely remember about nephrotic syndrome, and then vaguely you don't know what to do with, or at least that's me, I won't project that onto you. So there's always this question, should we or should we not anticoagulate these patients because they are procoagulopathic, especially as the albumin drops. So the lower the albumin, the the higher the, the prothrombotic risk. And so... There, there are the KD, the KDIGO guidelines from 2012 actually have recommendations, but they're kind of, I don't want to call them soft, but they say consider prophylactic anticoagulation for patients who have certain risk factors. So if the albumin's less than two and a half and they're spilling a ton of protein, so like more than 10 grams a day, or they have a BMI greater than 35 or some family history of genetic uh, venous thromboembolic disease, or they have heart failure, or they've been immobile like most of our patients or have a recent surgery those risk factors might want to make you consider anticoagulation. The real pearl, the, the takeaway for me was there's this uh, GN tools calculator that uh, Dr. Toff talked about that actually lets you compare the risk versus benefit of, of uh, anticoagulation. So you plug in the patient's albumin, their age, their hemoglobin, um, and a, a couple of other factors. And then also uh, your willingness to put the patient at risk. So, so they're the risk versus benefit of anticoagulation, the, the chance that they may actually bleed when they start it. And you plug all that into this calculator and it says, yes, there's benefit or no, there's not benefit. And we've always talked about that it's sort of like any test, we just want someone to tell us what to do. And this is <laughs> as close to getting to that as, as I think we get in terms of anticoagulation for nephrotic syndrome. You, you really might want nice the tool. patient's input before you're just like, yeah, this patient feels like a two to one chance of bleeding versus <laughs> a 10 to one chance of bleeding. <laughs> in, in my experience, just anytime you talk to the patient, it really tends to confuse the issue a lot. So yeah, I try that's to true. From I, as I never as talk to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. So, okay. Oh. So that's, uh, and hyperlipidemia is probably the other one we didn't mention, but you can, you can also check a lipid panel for nephrotic syndrome. We're not going to spend too much time on this talking nephritic syndrome. 
but the the picture there is a little different. As you'll remember, there's acute kidney injury uh, that will be prominent, elevated creatinine. They'll have hypertension Mm -hmm. and an active urine sediment with hematuria. They might have pyuria. They'll have a little bit of proteinuria. But uh, a lot of the times these patients are buying themselves a biopsy, whether they have nephrotic syndrome or nephritic syndrome. And uh, if you want to hear more about this, you can listen to the full episode. Also, the great Dr. Elena Gibson made a really fantastic like infographic that pretty much distills down everything we've been talking about into, into one figure. Okay. So if you want to enjoy more kidney pearls... Stay dehydrated, or you can just listen to episode number 250 from the Curbsider with Joel Top. Next up, does the is the USPSTFA, also known, <laughs> known as the USPSTF, the bane of your existence? Oh my gosh. Well, fly off with us on episode number 251, where we discuss the USPSTF with Dr. Bird. And you know what? My pearl, honestly, I have a ton of respect for these guys now and gals. Men and women. Because. (laughs) I think we should. (laughs) No, no, leave all of this. This is all your gold. Our sponsor today is Panacea Financial, the financial remedy for doctors created by doctors. With nationwide digital banking, Panacea Financial provides physicians and medical students with free checking a personal banker, around-the-clock customer support, and loans designed with you in mind. No one should borrow money more than they need, but with Panacea Financial, physicians and physicians in training can get money as needed in as little as 24 hours with their PRN personal loan. It has an interest rate that is less than half the average credit card, no cosigner requirement, and a fully digital application. Instead of running up credit card debt, try their PRN personal loan that is designed to give you a better way to cover expenses such as relocation, board exams, or even home renovations. In addition, physicians in training can have a period of no or reduced payments on their PRN personal loan. Go to PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn more. Panacea Financial is a division of Sonabank and member FDIC. Well, so, it, so t- it's- tell me more, Stuart, about your <laughs> about your feelings about the SPSTF, specifically the people that make make it up. I, I... It's so it's made up of volunteers. I had Great. absolutely no clue, and frankly, uh, these individuals spend a ton of time reviewing the literature and submitting these recommendations. I, and they even submit them for public discussion. I had no clue about that. What did you think about that, Paul? Right. No, I, I think I, I agree with you. The entire process is fascinating. I mean, like you, I, I wasn't as surprised that they were volunteers. I didn't think that they were drafted into servitude. Like this is this is probably a more humane way to come up with recommendations. But Unpaid. Um, they but yes, the, I think especially the public comment period, I think, is, is really fascinating because it's a chance they put out their draft recommendations. And we talk <sighs> about that in the episode as to what to do with the draft and how seriously to take it and what the process is. Yeah. And then anyone who wants can sort of um, communicate with them. Also, by the way, well, well, I'll get back to this. So you can you can. Uh, raise your specific concerns that you have with the draft recommendation. But even prior to that, if you have ideas for your own recommendations or things that you think they should investigate, mm-hmm. you can just contact the USPSTF and say, listen, I think you should look into this. And then it's not like they have to, but you can, <laughs> you can still ask. So that, that counts for something. <laughs> it doesn't hurt to ask. I feel like Stuart's the exact kind of person that's going to be sending them a lot of correspondence oh, no after question. learning this information. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually thinking that once this uh, episode is posted, the next time they post something for public discussion, there's going to be floored and flooded with feedback. And they're going to look at us and say, you know what? No more public discussion. Thanks to the curbsiders. 
But we did talk about some some more clinical aspects of preventive medicine and the updates because there was a number of updates in 2020. Paul, I'll leave it to you to uh, bring us into that. Yeah, there, I mean, there are a couple of updates that that spoke to our collective souls, I think. I think one was the screening for unhealthy drug use, which is a, a new recommendation. Um, a, a couple of, of points about that. One of the reasons why this has come up is because we actually have pretty good medications now to deal with, specifically at least opioid use disorder, I think is sort of all the rage in the current discussion. But we also have medications, obviously, for alcohol use disorder and, and tobacco use, but those things are addressed in separate recommendations. Um, so this recommendation, screening for unhealthy drug use, um, is new because we can actually do something about much of it. Uh, they recommend, this is, by the way, a, a verbal screening. They're not talking about laboratory screening. So this is not screening by sneaking off a, a urine for a tox screen. That's not what they mean by this. Uh, and they, they don't specify one single screening tool, but kind of give a, a list of validated screening tools. I think the NIDA is the one that we talk about in the episode that actually um, then goes on to even further tools to help you assist severity and sort of guidance as to what to do about that. So it's 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 an exciting recommendation. It's because screening is different than asking about substance use, I think. So this is a way to actually be systematic and evidence-based about it and have a plan what to do with it. So I was, I was very happy to see that. Well, we should mention to the audience that uh, since we recorded and released this episode, the uh, buprenorphine waiver <laughs> requirement seems mm-hmm. to have been lifted. We're still in this like two-week period where it has to be verified or one extra step. But I, I is that is that going away, Paul, do you think? Or do we need yeah. to cut this? No, I, yeah, it's, I'm sorry to put you on this emotional roller coaster. So yeah, there was a lot of excitement because uh, there was an announcement that they're going to be um, exiting the X waiver, which I think we've all been kind of pulling for and sort of yeah. destigmatizing and making this more available. Unfortunately, it sounds like it's not as easy as an executive order. I don't want to get too into the weeds, but our friend Stefan Cortez actually posted about this on Twitter. And this was the... The reason that the X waiver exists was, I think, an act of Congress and executive orders can't reverse acts of Congress. So I think it's going to require a little bit more legislation than just signing an executive order. So I don't think the X waiver is going away anytime uh, soon, hopefully eventually, but it's not as imminent as we thought that it was. Yeah. But in any case, people should get themselves access to prescribing BUP. So get your X waiver if this uh, doesn't go through, especially if it's going to be a couple months or longer until because- uh, that has been just like we've said this before, a hugely rewarding part of practice, and we we have a lot more knowledge about addiction medicine now, and a lot more capability to to offer help to these patients, and I, that's that's a big reason why they're telling us to look for unhealthy drug use because now we do actually have some medications that can do something about it, and going right along with this, Paul, Hep C screening still just for baby boomers? Not no, it's. They, it's expanded now. It's just adults, uh, boys and girls of all ages. Actually, not boys and girls. Disregard that. But adults for sure. So age 18 to 79 is, is the grade B recommendation. So screening at least once for hepatitis C. Um, and then you, you rescreen again if there's any changes in risk factors at all. The, the screening uh, lab of choice is the, the hep C antibody that then reflexes to um, RNA, either quantitative or qualitative. The other thing about this is it's not, it's not the... The cutoff at 79, you don't just stop necessarily. There's actually another recommendation that goes along with this that's a little bit uh, softer, if I remember correctly, that you can consider screening even in older patients if the risk is high enough and the benefit's worth it. And this is this all comes about because we have such good medications for hepatitis C now. It is relatively straightforward to treat in most patients, and, and it's sort of widely available. So now there's more utility in screening a, a broader swath of the patient population. I think that also raises the point, while I'm in lecture mode for some reason, that these screening recommendations are not based in any way on cost. So it's not like hep C treatment is cheap. 
Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. So even though the recommendation is based on the availability of treatment and the ease of treatment, um, that's not a, a direct consideration in terms of whether or not to screen or not. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a balance of benefits and harms where yep. anything with a grade A from or grade A or B from USPSTF is, you know, we're pretty certain that the benefits are going to outweigh the harms. And uh, it's something that you, you should do for patients. Well, sometimes when I'm writing emails, they just tend to get away from me a little bit. And I, I they end up being these novellas where they probably don't need to be. They, they I have a little bit of trouble editing and I feel like I have a lot to say, but I say it with probably a lot more words than I need to. This is my way of saying that I might be helped by Grammarly, a product we're happy to talk to you about tonight that actually helps provide you with tools to give you more clear and effective communication. Yeah, Paul, this is a product that I am really excited to have recently started using because I do a bunch of writing and editing as part of my work for the show on a weekly basis. And this is great because in real time, it plugs in. There's a desktop app. There's a mobile app, browser plugin. It plugs right into things like Outlook and Gmail, even LinkedIn, Twitter. It can give you grammar suggestions, vocabulary suggestions, make your writing like less bland and boring. I, I don't have a great vocabulary, Paul. Not all of us are the poet laureate of the curbsiders <laughs> is what we would call you, Paul. Sure. <laughs> so I think Grammarly is great. Our audience, I'm sure people are writing personal statements. They're writing articles for journals. There is a ton of features with this and it plugs in. It's like having your own like personal writing coach, essentially. And Paul, don't be offended by this, but I've noticed that sometimes maybe you struggle with tone. It's, you know, my tone is fine, Matt. It's just um, people's interpretation of it that is flawed. But you're right. I, I think because I, I tend to sometimes be more sarcastic than I should when I'm being sincere, people aren't quite sure how to read it. One of the features of Grammarly Premium is that it can actually judge tone in addition to helping you with vocabulary suggestions in your grammar. So this might be a way to make sure that you're not being overly angry or hostile uh, or even overly enthusiastic. It's a way to actually read into the tone itself, which I think is a fascinating and doubtlessly helpful feature. That's right, Paul. I think this is a perfect product for you and probably you'll end up with a lot more friends. So if you're like Paul, you need Grammarly. Ah, how did this happen? So elevate your writing with 20% off at Grammarly Premium by signing up at Grammarly.com forward slash curb. That's 20% off Grammarly Premium at G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y.com forward slash curb. The final thing we want to talk about is cervical cancer screening. And this actually is not a USPSTF change. This is an American Cancer Society change. And the American Cancer Society changed their recommendation. Instead of starting screening at age 21, they're now starting screening at age 25. And they're recommending that you go purely to an HPV, high-risk HPV only model of screening so that every five years uh, you would screen up through age 65. And that is a recommendation that Dr. Bird was expecting will carry over maybe into future USPSTF recommendations because the right. current recommendations from USPSTF are that you screen women between ages 21 and 29 with cytology every three years, so the traditional PAP. And Dr. Bird had some interesting things to say about that, that a big reason that the American Cancer Society changed this is because of the vaccination sort of changes the game and changes the performance of these tests. Now that there has been a lot of people who've been vaccinated that are now going to be in this age group, the risk of, yeah, the performance of these tests is a bit different. So she said that 
patients getting just traditional cytology are you, you might see these minor changes in the cervix that lead to biopsy, but they actually, you know, they're probably low risk HPV types because of the vaccine, which I had never right. thought about or. <laughs> and those changes will ultimately revert and not become clinically significant. Yeah. But we're picking them up because, because we're doing the cytology, which will even identify lower risk HPV yeah. changes, right? But what she said about the, the potential harms or, or what she was, it sounded like still trying to reconcile was what she's going to do for these patients between 25 and 29 in the near term, because, you know, you can still follow USPSTF and, and do the cytology only, or you can follow the American Cancer Society and do the HPV testing. But with the HPV testing, she was worried about that up to age 29, there's still maybe a higher risk that they're going to have like an HPV positive test and go to Colpo. And it would have just, you know, resolved on its own because there's a high rate of just patients just getting better, even if you do nothing. So it's, it's evolving. I it's, this has been one of the most evolved, like of all the recommendations, this one seems to change every time right now. Yeah. Yeah. And be bewildering every time to me, but I feel a little bit better about it after the episode. Yeah. So if you want to learn more about prevention and preventive medicine, take a listen to episode number 251 from The Curbsiders with Dr. Bird. And up next, did your patient grow up a rebel with a cause and now idolizes one certain guitarist from The Rolling Stones? Well, fear not. <laughs> episode number 252 from The Curbsiders, we are talking about smoking cessation with Dr. Baldessari. And up first, I have my own pearl. You see... Wait, hold on. What? Go back. So, do you really think there are any children recently growing up that just idolized <laughs> Keith Richards? Is this is this the premise that we're starting from? <laughs> is this what we're doing? Yes. Oh my gosh. All right, carry on. I'm not. I mean, I don't have kids. I'm not here to judge. I'm just. I want to make sure I'm. I'm staying correct. I mean, okay. everything Sorry, retro. Pearl, everything retro is cool now. I right? thought you were going to go slash at least, but no, you went Rolling Stones. Like I am. <laughs> I am just. My mind is blown. All right. All right. Sorry. So uh, I love the idea of approaching smoking cessation with both uh, long and short acting medications, kind of like basal bolus insulin um, in the way that uh, you give something up front to control throughout the day and then something else for short term cravings or short term breakthroughs. So things like using nicotine patches, varenicline or bupropion for long acting medication. Then short acting, what I typically use nicotine gum, but there are other options as well lozenges uh if if you love torture the nasal sprays which do work quickest but um very uh low compliance and then also for uh nicotine inhalers which have had a ton of difficulty getting approved there's actually one time one of my patients got a bill for about 900 bucks for a nicotine inhaler one one nicotine inhaler yeah it's insane yeah that was gonna be my question because i (sighs) i really see just the gum and the lozenges uh as for for like the cravings for the short acting therapy. And I haven't, I have not seen, I didn't know a nasal spray existed and I'd heard of the inhaler, but I thought it was just like a unicorn. Paul, have you seen it? I, no, I've, I've I've run into the same issues that Stuart has in terms of actually getting covered by insurance. I've tried it every so often. I, you know, and I actually like, I'd like to hear your, your all's take on this. Um, because I know we talked a little bit about underdosing. I know, Matt, you want to talk more about that. And one of the mistakes that we make in terms of prescribing the nicotine replacement therapy is, is dosing issues. But the reason I like the gum and the reason I like the lozenge or even the inhaler, should I ever get it covered, would be because to actually address the behavioral component. So I feel like a lot of the episode we talked about sort of the, the biochemical and sort of the 
the biologic basis of addiction, which I think is obviously appropriate. But I wonder for my patients intuitively, it seems to make sense that, you know, everyone has their triggers uh, for the most part. So to have something specific to reach for when you have that trigger seems to me from a, at least a behavioral standpoint to make sense. So I like having the short acting because, um, you know, the, the long acting will sort of take the, the edge off. Um, but in terms of the triggers, they're always going to be there. And whether it's boredom or it is anger or it is a large meal or what have you, I feel like it just makes sense from a behavioral standpoint to have something to reach for. And that's why I sort of like the short acting. Yeah. That's why I like the gum and why I think the inhalers are appealing. But unfortunately, it's just the inhalers specifically, I've had no luck getting covered by any insurances. And Paul, what this relates to your point, and it was something that had really struck me because I just, I didn't know that this was a barometer for the level of nicotine addiction, but asking a patient the question, how long is the time to your first cigarette when you wake up in the morning? Hmm. Is is really like a barometer. So the sooner that first cigarette occurs, the more that person, uh, the more addicted to nicotine they are. Um, yeah, and the more they're going to have trouble. Probably, they're, you're going to need to be real aggressive with the nicotine replacement. So when you prescribe the gum, Paul, it, it, did that change your practice? For me, it did for sure. That was specifically practice changing. I, I knew about that as a as a metric of of addiction, but in terms of actually then tying that into the medications I prescribe was a little bit different. So the idea of using, if you if less than a half hour after waking up you're smoking, doing the four milligram gum, and if it takes you longer than a half hour after waking up to pick up a cigarette, then using the two milligram. That was that was specifically practice yeah. changing for me. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And when you prescribe the gum, the the default prescription is is a uh, one piece every twenty four hours up to. 24 no. pieces a day. <laughs> what? Yeah. Like it's, Jeez. it's, you can, it's as needed, but it, you can prescribe up to 24 pieces a day. Oh, oh, sure. Which makes yeah. sense because we talked about how the, the onset of the gum is about an hour on the show. Uh, I think the nasal spray was the nasal spray or the inhaler were the quickest and they might be 15 to 30 minutes. Don't, don't quote me on that exactly, but the, the gum takes about an hour. And, uh, Dr. Chan, Carolyn was saying that she actually, when, when, if somebody is like really just starting, uh, and they're on the patch and they just quit smoking, she might tell them to chew a piece of gum every two hours just to have some nicotine, you know, some little boost up front. They can always chew an extra piece in between that time. Uh, and I thought that was, you know, that's not, that's an expert opinion, definitely not an ev evidence-based mm. thing, but she was saying that she's having some luck with that just, and I think it probably signals to the patient that you know, like we talked about, underdosing is really common uh, so that patients really, uh, if they're smoking a pack a day or more than half a pack a day, they're probably going to need the 21 milligram patch. Some people who have a more severe nicotine use disorder, they might need two patches. And that's not something that I would have thought to do. Yeah, I'd, I'd be curious. I'll, I'll ask both of you in terms of your, your patient experience, but like it's I think in the past I had used the number of cigarettes smoked as sort of my metric for how severe yeah. the, the dependency was. But mm -hmm. it's in terms of patient smoking behaviors, you know, it, cigarette right now, not to date the podcast, but like $12 a pack in, <laughs> in uh, Cash Act Northeast. And so I have patients who will light up, take three puffs, put the cigarette out and then use. So they'll be doing that throughout the day. So 10 cigarettes for them does not necessarily mean. So I, I don't think a pack is a pack is a pack. No, you know, I, I think no. someone who smokes a pack a day may take two drags and throw the cigarette out the car window. And then there's somebody who might smoke four cigarettes a day, but they make that cigarette last and sort of use it over and over right. again. So I, it's just, it's not a sort of one-to-one -one correlation. So the behavioral stuff I think is yeah. probably a more useful measure. Mm. So I, I found all this really interesting and, and sort of practice changing for me. Yeah. So like we talked about with like alcohol and opioid use disorder, close follow-up, talking to the person about their cravings, uh, adjusting the dose as needed, especially for uh, like 
for we talk about with buprenorphine and things, uh, it's it's something that you need to do with nicotine replacement as well. And that the person shouldn't remove their patch if they're going to smoke. They can keep the patch on and they can smoke. Uh, they're not going to die. Uh, they might they might feel a little nauseous or jittery, but uh, it, that tells you that you're 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 underdosing them, or you right. need to reevaluate your treatment. And right. um, we definitely also talked about the uh, on the show. We're not going to get onto this. We talked about e-cigarettes. We talked about some of the non-pharmacologic therapies as well. There's quit lines and whatnot. So if people want to hear more. Uh, like get more in depth on this. I highly recommend they they check out that episode. Yeah. Did we have any more pearls before we move on? Nope. I can take it out. Okay. All right. So if these pearls blow your mind and sound too smoking hot for you, fear not. Take a <laughs> breath of fresh air and listen to episode number two hundred fifty two from the Curbsiders with Doctor Baldassari. Paul, take us out. This, I mean, this this newfound poise and professionalism, I find deeply unsettling <laughs> i just uh i feel replaceable now which is a problem for me but we'll we'll talk about this after the show this has been another episode of the curbsiders bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole yummy get your show notes at the curbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need Paul's feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, which is pretty much all of us, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog Morgan on Instagram, Tima Karganov on our website, and Chris, the true man shoe, who's still on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music you are doubtless hearing behind us. And we should also thank Claire Morgan of Notterly for editing our audio. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye, Paul.